frogs. Ah. There's no like hard C sound, so it'd be like frog. Frogs. Yeah, it would be Just a frog. Like, trail up. Frog. frog. <laughs> I'm frog Zach. Frog. Frog Zach. So fucking stupid. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our stupid fucking was cold so open. We gotta dumb. move the away one that from we, cold opens. There's no moving away. You we, just yeah. we just do whatever we want. We need to figure out. I've been saying this has been you behind the scenes here. This has been my battle for years. We need to figure out an alternative version of the intro where it's maybe like we've done. I made a softer little intro. We, maybe we need an even harder intro. Do that too. What is it? Just should just be me being like, fuck you, and then drop the beat. The beat has been dropped, but my testicles haven't. My name is Blaze. No, that's I'm the step that we got to get out of the my, show. My name is what? <laughs> what are you fucking? Do? I'm sorry. I have said on the show before, and I'll say it again. Until I was probably about 15 years old, I thought your balls dropping was an actual physical yeah. one-time act that you experienced. Like New Year's. Like a gut punch. <laughs> like New New Year's. Yeah, like Times Square. It's a physical thing? Yeah, where they oh, dropped the ball. I see what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yes. Your what? balls drop on your, your 12th or 13th <laughs> birthday on New Year's. Yeah. And then you start talking And Carson Daly narrates it. He did. Well, that's. And Miley Cyrus performs. I, this is what I assume happens on New Year's. I did. I saw Miley Cyrus on New Year's last year. Look at that. I, me and Lance Bass. I stood next to him and his. The non-astronaut. I, four of the identically heighted but multiracial uh, gay guys mm. sort of flanking His me. crew? His crew. They were incredible. Nice. They, they, I, I, my memory might fade or have faded, but I believe they were all wearing. Um, in fact, I'm sure I'm just adding this in in sort of like a altered memory kind of thing. But I That's picture them with no shirts and uh, suit jackets. Were they cosmonauts? No, no, I, I got the. I did not get a whiff. Wouldn't of that be the, cool? That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, like some kind of new. What was the? <laughs> I can't remember fucking anything ever. Talking about altered memory. What's the gay YMCA band? The Village, the village people. people. Yeah, there you go. So you got Village People, but like cosmonaut style. Yeah, a lot of people don't know they were straight. <laughs> they just dressed like none that. of my business. They, a lot of their fan base was gay, but the Village People were straight. None of my business. I. Love Lance. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. Liz Bass. <laughs> and we are, of course, joined by Laika. <laughs> Young Chomsky. <laughs> oh, it's a cosmonaut. Uh, the producer of this podcast, which is called... True not. Hello. They should send more dogs to space. They should not. No. To me, I've... Uh, why? They live... What? No, they... Famously They not. live. Yeah. <laughs> They lived. They lived to a, up to a point, and then they dogs. don't. Well, how about an eleven-year-old dog? <laughs> Would you be okay with sending an eleven-year-old no. dog to space? What about a mother monkey or two? No. This is why. Why I, are we oh, sending animals to space? It's cheaper. For what? Uh, views. You could probably get a lot of views <laughs> from that in some sort of TikTokian environment. TikTokian. I imagine how many views a dog <laughs> in in space would do. Probably not as many as a you TikTok. think. TikTok. I think it would do a lot. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, we, we got a little bit of a true crime week. We do. We do. We do have a true crime week. A true or fake crime week. Detective true crime. No, I don't know where I'm going with this. Funny, well, fake know. detectives in this story. Yeah, some bullshit fucking detectives in this story. Not our guests. No. But, uh, some of the people who are looking at this case. Uh, we are talking about the uh, troubled teen industry. Mm. And uh, this is sort of a follow-up to our episode we did about a year ago with David Safran. Um, and also related, I would say, to our, our series, The Game. Absolutely. Um, as as people who would, are probably very familiar with Seadoo from that. CD which came from Synanon, which turned into the place I went to. Um, and we're which, about also, if you stuff. haven't listened to, we're going to link to it in the show notes. Just made that decision. And you yeah. should listen to it. Yeah, we listen, we'll, we'll, we'll link all that stuff. This was a, this is, for some reason, because we did an episode on this last year, um, but I, I was I was very affected looking at, looking into this again. Yeah, I I don't know. I said this during the interview that everyone's going to listen to in a second. But it, this is one of those cases where you're like, damn, how is this not like a big fucking story? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I I'm do. like, this seems like this should be like at a, a legacy publication with like a big fucking story that like pushes all of the right buttons, the kind of thing that you would see in a series like True Detective, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It involves uh, missing children um, and and very clear cover-ups by not only a discredited institution um, that is now closed, but uh, by a sheriff's department. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think that, you know, one thing that that I really affected me when we were doing research for the game uh, is just how many like lives of kids now, often adults, but still kids because these places are still around, have are affected by this. Um, and you know, I've been doing lately like a lot of thinking about how it's sort of affected me in, in certain ways. But also, you know, it's the the ultimate thing is is dying from this. Uh, and you know, there's there's. There's th- appears to be at least three casualties directly linked to this specific facility, um, and this happens still. Like these places are, CDU might be closed, but there's these places are still all over the country. Um, as we get into the episode, supported by people uh, on in both major political parties, and it's just yeah, it's just a, such a rotten industry. Um, but with that being said, uh, I think let's get into the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Synanon. With us here today for a rousing rap session, we have uh, David Safran. You might remember him from our episode about a year ago called Sea-Doo Detective. Uh, he wrote under the nom de guerre, A Medium Anonymous, a really great long-form piece on Sea-Doo and uh, has written for LA Magazine about the story we'll be talking about today and a bunch of stuff. Fantastic. One of the, one of the best researchers into this, uh, the topic of the, I guess, you don't like to call it that, but a lot of people know it, the troubled teen industry. And Josh Block, the host and producer of the Lost Kids podcast. Uh, and guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yep. Thank you. So... The day this episode comes out, February 8th, is the anniversary of the disappearance of Daniel Ewan from Sea-Doo. 
And uh, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I think just as a little bit of background to to fill listeners in who maybe haven't heard the previous episode, uh, can you tell us about the what? First of all, what is Sidu, and what uh, what is it about the disappearance of Daniel Ewan that made you want to uh, to 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 research it? Um, so, what is Sidu? That's an excellent question. I was there for sixteen months. I can't really answer that uh, coherently. Um, mm. Essentially. CDU was a uh, private residential treatment facility, uh, behavior modification. Um, it was originally, it was, a, it was meant to be some sort of uh, utopian rehab kind of thing. Um, and then it eventually kind of transformed. It took in all kinds of kids. If you had low-level depression, well, you can get your behavior modified um, for two years. If you do have some sort of drug addiction, the same thing could happen. It went on and on and on. Um, it was um, uh, one of the most influential programs uh, within the, the troubled teen industry. Um, and multiple kids went missing. Um, the ones that we know about and talk about um, most often, 1993, a kid named John Inman, 1994, Blake Persley, uh, and then in 2004, Daniel Ewan. So those are the three um, the the three kids that I've been researching um, for the last couple of years. Um, and and that was you know these were at one at one time these were solvable cases, um, and uh, they just never have been solved. Never really looked into. And so, and uh, David and I worked on a podcast specifically about Daniel Ewan's case. Called the podcast is called the Lost Kids, and we, I mean, we really you, we we looked at the bigger story of the so-called troubled teen industry and of Sidu specifically, but through the lens of this this one, the, the last of the three boys that went missing from the program, um, and he was like I think pretty emblematic of how a lot of a lot of teens end up at Sidu. He had low-level depression. He was kind of, you know, hit his adolescence, was struggling in school, was experimenting with drugs. He was, you know, there was a shift in his personality mm-hmm. and, and his parents were really concerned about him. They, you know, went to the schools, asked for support. They reached out to psychiatrists. They did a bunch of stuff because they recognized that their son was was struggling. And kind of in an act of desperation, da, Wayne Ewan, Daniel's father, just Googled online, you know, what's a, what's a program for for struggling kids. And the first thing that pops mm-hmm. up is this uh, website for this wonder, beautiful looking boarding, I think it's like a you know a therapeutic boarding school right. in yeah. the hills of San Bernardino. And we can fix everything. We can fix depression. We can fix you know ADD, whatever it is. Send your kid here. It's going to cost you a bunch of money. But what you're going to get is your kid back. And in an act of desperation, which is really how a lot of parents arrive at these programs, they thought, great, like this, this might be the fix. And they took Daniel there um, you know, there's a, a bit of a story about, you know, what happened when they arrived, but essentially they, you know, when, when they got there, Daniel said, I don't want to stay. And mm-hmm. the program said, no, no, well, let's just come talk to the dean. Come talk to the dean. And they kind of right. took Daniel aside. And then they came back to the parents and said, you know what, Daniel's fine. He wants to stay. Best for you to just leave. And that was really the last time Wayne and Lisa, his parents, ever saw Daniel again. Yeah. So to you, the best of your like understanding after looking into this case for so many years, what happened between that drop-off and Daniel's disappearance? Like, What did he find when he arrived at CDU? What the, the community he found was, 
not what he expected. I mean, I was sent to CDU for the exact same reason that Daniel was. Um, and I think once, once you're enrolled and you do the move-in process and you are already mm-hmm. a startled contactee and you're just not used to this sort of, you know, private prison vibe of the place and that through <laughs> Daniel, I, I believe. Um, yeah. I just want to go back a bit though, because the narrative that we have of Daniel arriving at CDU and, you know, becoming more depressed and, and this all really still comes from his parents. We haven't actually heard it from Daniel himself. And I, I mean, I interviewed his best friend, Nick. So did you, Josh. And right. there is a sense that there was a personality shift a bit, but it doesn't sound as extreme as how the Ewans portray it. And I understand it from the Ewans perspective too, and the parents seeing this and, you know, the kids slipping and the grades are slipping. But I, I do, you know, I, I do worry that maybe he, he wasn't really as, as far gone as, uh, as it seems. Um, and that it was sort of an over an overreaction to a pretty normal uh, shift in team behavior. Um, nevertheless, he arrives in this place. He's completely overwhelmed. It's incomprehensible, and he basically shuts down. And he's not making friends. Um, he's he's finding it very difficult to navigate the system. Um, he only, uh, from my understanding, it was just his phone calls were monitored at CDU. They were monitored by a staffer right. and they happened every two weeks. Um, I, from, from my understanding, it was just one phone call that he had with his parents. He was only there about 13 days before he vanished. Um, and he was scheduled to have another phone call two days before CDU informed his parents that he was missing. Uh, but that phone call for whatever reason, it didn't occur. I believe they said it was a, like a scheduling mix-up or something like that, which always sounded very suspicious to me because that was the one that was the one part of CDU that they had down to a science. You know, it was these scheduled phone calls. So to have a mix-up, um, in my mind, maybe it, you know, maybe uh, he he lost the privilege at that point because um, I guess the first the first phone call. He was trying to explain to his parents, as many of us were, that this is not uh, the marketing that you fell for. That this is yeah. not the right kind of program. Right, and 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 like important and importantly, as you mentioned, David, like these these phone calls were monitored, and um, the, you know there's very clear rules about what any of the you know exactly. residents yeah. could say. But also, Wayne and Lisa, like all parents, were given a parent handbook, and it mm-hmm. said, "Here's what your kid might say." They kind of inoculated the parents against yeah. complaints. So they said, your parents, you can might complain, and the best thing for you to do is to not, you know, don't take it at face value. All kids do this. It's not going to help their growth and their, you know, development through this program if you complain. And, and of course, you know, Daniel did what many people wouldn't do and be like, this place is bananas. Get me out of here. And Wayne and Lisa said, oh, yeah, the, the, the handbook said that he was going to say this, so we're not going to do anything. Right. And then when Daniel said, I want to leave, um, you know, he, he kind of violated the rules of what you're allowed to say in a phone call and, and Sidhu shut off the call. So that actually was the last time they spoke yep. to, to their son. The, the call was, was disconnected um, and then the next call never happened. And then, you know, it, it is murky what happens next. We, mm-hmm. we, we know that, that, that Sidhu claims that he ran away. Um, and there's really only two ways to run away from Sidhu. There's the one road that leads in and out of the program, and then there's what they call the backside, which is just mm-hmm. the, the, you know, why, the wilderness down. It's, it, it, you, kind of, you can see San Bernardino from the program. It looks kind of deceptively close, but if you were to try and run away and run to San Bernardino, 
you were facing the elements. It's not an easy thing no. to traverse. Um, and there's some speculation that, you know, he did go that direction in an effort not to be caught, perhaps seeing, you know, the, the city that looks kind of not too far away. But the truth is, we don't know. I mean, this is where we get into really, um, you know, murky territory because um, the, there's very little, you know, the police have not offered any significant information. The program has not offered very significant information. And then, you know, the efforts by the UN family to try and uh, to tr- figure out what happened has not been incredibly fruitful. Right. I think there's actually three th- three ways, not just two. There, were, there was the there was a, a farm road where it was the, there used to be a barn, um, but those are all different. You know, these are opposite directions, and uh, it, the parallels with Blake Persley's case and also Daniel Ewan's are astounding. Uh, both have three different options for how both kids could have run, and that was provided by CDU. All the information mm-hmm. that we have, for the most part, about these disappearances comes from CDU itself. And even within the documents, the, the the depositions, all all the stuff that you know in the in the uh, the civil suit that the UNs had against Sidu, it states repeatedly, just it's 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 hammered over and over and over that all of these are lies that they just lied completely. Sidu staff to the UN family to their lawyers, uh, they lied in the depositions. This is what this is not me saying that. That's what you know the UNs are saying, um, and it's just it's. It's so incomprehensible to, it's very difficult to untangle what is true in, in all of this, uh, in all of these cases, for the most part. I mean, uh, not to kind of uh, digress too much, but for example, like John Inman, the first kid that went missing, uh, when the, the, the few months that Detective Alicia Rosa had revived these cases, she went back to Inman's and, and Pursley's and she she inter- she re-interviewed a kid that reportedly ran after John Inman to Highway 18 when he, when he was running away. Uh, not only did this now adult have no memory of John Inman, he, did, he didn't remember uh, speaking to police about this. Uh, so, so all of it just seemed complete bullshit. And the... The assumption then is that staff was actually feeding the story to the deputy, that the deputy, in fact, hadn't actually interviewed that kid. So that just seems to be a pattern. That, yeah, that is, that is really something. I mean, I, I know that from you know, my experience in these schools, because uh, I went to, as listeners of the show will probably know, I went to a, a school that was like a direct descendant of of Sidu. Uh, had many uh, people who uh, the, the entire leadership had been graduates uh, of Sidu, and many were related to people who were high up in, in Sidu before it got shut down. And I went also uh, in the same year that that uh, that twenty years ago. Jesus fucking Christ! Yeah. Uh, wow. That uh, <laughs> that Daniel Ewan disappeared. Um, and you know, I ran away. I ran away twice. And the first time I ran away. I did the classic method of also running in winter. Uh, I just took off down the road. It was my first week there. I said I had to go to the bathroom. That was the only time you were ever allowed to be alone because the bathroom was uh, outside this one door, and I just jumped a fence and uh, and ran. And they sent people after me, uh, some staff members, and there was really oh, there was only one road uh, unless you were running deep into the woods away from any kind of civilization. There was no towns around there, uh, and uh, and they caught me, and I I got taken back. 
Um, but you know, for 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 these kids, I, I know it was basically the same SOP, right? Like they mm-hmm. they send out uh, staff members to look for kids. Uh, they do this, and and remember, like the staff members at these places are not generally, in my experience, the most professional individuals, and I mean professional in this sort of colloquial senses, and they're oftentimes. Uh, Damaged, uh, damaged people uh, in in many ways. Right. Sometimes even graduates themselves. No? Oftentimes right. even yeah. graduates very, themselves. Very in the cases, Sidu maybe even graduates from Synanon, um, which is not well. Not it was really the whole notion right. of giving back, right? That was yes, that, yeah. That was you know embedded in the whole. They're whole system place. people. You, they they like being right. in a system. Um, yeah. But uh, and then afterwards, if you're gone for a certain amount of time, I'm sure it varies place to place. They end up calling the police and. In this case, they ended up calling. When did they call San Bernardino Sheriff's Department in Daniel's case? For, for Daniel Ewan, uh, it it was February eighth. Yeah, I think it was like eleven o'clock ish in the you know in the morning, something like yeah. that on a Sunday, which is also like the the dumbest time time to run. Uh, the, it was just it's all implausible. But that's what's in the police report is not you know see view themselves as a you know law enforcement uh, institution of its own, right? So like they had their own. Departure form. They had their own internal document. You know their their runaway incident report, which for Daniel Ewan they they didn't share with uh, the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station or the you know San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, and they didn't either with um, John Inman. They refused to to uh, to share that information. So the but the internal document we I don't have that, but I have parts of that. Mm-hmm. So does Josh through the 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 legal docs that the Ewans had sent a while ago. Uh, and it's very different than what is in the official runaway report that uh, a counselor gave. You know, this one reporting party, they didn't really do any sort of search and rescue. The narrative was, at least in the official runaway report, that, uh, that Daniel was going to get some cigarettes. He was going to go to the gas station or maybe Arrow Bear, which is, you know, a neighboring town or whatever. Because a kid that's been there 13 days and has no idea where he's at could get to a neighboring town. Like I was there for 16 months. I couldn't tell you how to get to the 76 yeah, to Bolero yeah. or whatever, you know. I mean, that's in town, but I mean, it's just it's it's just ridiculous. Um, so that was that was the one that was the one version. Then there's another version that he was sweeping on the backside with another kid. And then somehow he magically disappeared, just sweeping a deck on the backside of the mountain. So that's, that's the other one. Then there's another narrative about him, you know, running really fast. And then he's taken, he's restrained by another kid who's his dorm head. Um, that's, it was in the, it's very confusing in the, in the, in the depositions, it, it seems that he, they're indicating that he ran a different Sunday. Is that correct, Josh? I do mm-hmm. remember that. Mm-hmm. It was like they just concluded that it was two different Sundays that he was running. Um, I always thought that to be a little suspicious. Then there's all these reports that maybe he was trying to grab a DVD player that he was going to sell, or he he grabbed <laughs> some skis, but there were no skis actually available on campus. It's it's all it, it's all very very confusing. These narratives. Um, and the police report itself is very confusing. So between both the police, the official police report from San Bernardino and the incident report from CDU, there's like right. completely contradictory accounts from, you know, testimony from people who worked there of what actually happened to Daniel. Um, 
But these two places knew each other very intimately, still know each other very intimately, even though CD was shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the San Bernardino Police Department and CD? Because that they they wouldn't have been surprised to get a phone call yeah. that a kid had been missing, right? They had they had received a lot of phone calls about missing kids, runaway kids, or even Daily. you know, yeah, especially sure. violent or you know, uh, irascible. <laughs> yes. To, uh, incidents at the CDU campus over the years. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe. Yeah, I believe the, the the call logs, which I have, are something like between ninety seven and two thousand five. There's you know four hundred fifteen reports of runaways. Four hundred and fifteen. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It, there, were, there were definitely. Yeah, it was in the it was in the hundreds. But and we and to be clear, we don't know. There could have been multiple calls about a single incident. But nonetheless, like the police were well aware. I mean, it raises the question of how can you have a program in your community that has that quantity of runaways and then not raise the alarm bells. At some point, you you have to imagine as a law enforcement that you have a potential serious, uh, and, you know, and we saw what happened, but you have a potential um, seriously dangerous place if that many kids are, are running from the program, um, you know, into, into the cold of, of winter. So, you know, they, they we, we did the FOIA request that we found out that there, there were that many incidents and it, and it seems to be the case that they would pick up a kid and, and bring them back to the program, um, if anything. I mean, that, that was sort of the best case scenario. Um, and then, you know, CDU also employed, well, sorry, you can, David can talk a little bit more about, you know, what that relationship they'll look like. Yeah. Well, I do want to say, so yeah, the, in eight years' time, the Sheriff's Department logged 341 reports of runaways, 67 AWOLs, four missing juveniles, and three missing persons. And these are all reports about the same thing. It's just all runaways. But within that eight-year stretch, uh, there the and these are all, or the majority of them are all out-of-state kids, right? But the Sheriff's Department logged only 10 attempts to locate and four search and rescue missions out of that entire number. So they were not, they did not care. Uh, they were not looking for these kids. And the year that Daniel vanished, they had zero search and rescues uh, logged. Uh, but there were multiple, I think it was like 33 kids or something like that. I can't remember the number, but it was a number of kids that same year that Daniel vanished. And part of that reason, it seems like why that was, is because San Bernardino seemed to basically take, uh, you know, basically take like CDU's word for it. Like, oh, we've got our own you know, operation in-house, right? We have our own search and rescue team that's going to handle this, which is sort of what happened with the case of Daniel, right? That's right. I mean, very quickly, the the program, CDU told Wayne and Lisa, they said, look, Daniel's run away, but we have an excellent private investigator who specializes in in Mm. tracking down kids. And here's his number. They kind of washed their hands of of having to then, you know, have any correspondence with Wayne and Lisa because they said, here's this, here's this guy, Keith Raymond. He's the best of the best. He'll find uh, Daniel, you know, for for the right price. And that's how uh, Wayne and Lisa ended up hiring Keith Raymond. um, And his wife, too. And his wife, Cindy, Cindy. to to, to search for their son. And he's the one, I mean, we can get into it. He's not very credible, but he he is the one that ended up doing a more extensive search down the backside, he says, into the surrounding communities. And then... We don't know if that actually happened. That's just what he says. Exactly. Um, Right. And he was also, both Keith and Cindy were... I mean, they're in the employee records for CDU as escorts. So, you know, and, and he's he's kind of, he's made a number of different statements that all contradict each other. But for the most part, it does seem like he was employed 
you know, as some sort of staffer at CDU as well. So he's double dipping, which is not uncommon too. I mean, it's a fascinating element about the entire industry. So, you know, the trouble, the so-called troubled teen industry, which some people have said is as mm-hmm. big as, you know, a billion dollars. Aside from the programs themselves, there's all these adjacent um, people that that also glom onto exactly. um, this opportunity to take advantage of desperate parents. Yeah, cottage industries. <laughs> Absolutely, and and so you can hire someone to escort your kid from the home to the program. You can hire them to chase after your kid when they run away. You can mm-hmm. hire an educational consultant who will tell you which is the best, uh, you know, therapeutic boarding school to send your kid to. So it just speaks to. Um, how you know how sort of massive this industry was, and how many people were kind of dipping into uh, the the desperation of parents. Yeah, I mean, right, I, right. I just a personal anecdote about um, about the escorts. Uh, I mean, these are people again. Like all this stuff is is I think there's a sort of an assumption of professionalization or pro- professionalism, um, maybe from people who are are not super familiar with the industry. But as I'm sure, like. As I experienced firsthand, as I'm sure that that, that Josh, you got to know uh, by dealing with Keith, uh, I mean, most of these people are complete freaks and psychos. I mean, I the first <laughs> the first uh, two people I ever ha- saw have sex were the were these two people who escorted me to wilderness, uh, where they did it on a motel bed uh, in the same motel room as me. I mean, it's totally like a, a, a wow. it's sort of like a wild west kind of very. Wow. Very little, if any, regulation on any of these people. Um, you know, it's and uh, and yeah, they they they. I think you know, with with regards to parents, I think that parents also assume that there's there's professionalism here. I mean, you know, you mentioned right. uh, talking about uh, Daniel's Daniel's parents, Wayne and Lisa, being being fooled by these uh, this sort of slick press kits coming out of Sidu. Uh, you know, I know I know that it was a very similar thing for my parents. You know thinking that they were sending me to a completely different kind of program than the one I actually went to. Uh, and, um, yeah, and so I, I think that, that you know, it, it really sets the stage for a lot of parents to be taken advantage of um, in, in this way, too, by, by essentially charlatans. And that's, that's, that's one of the things that's really so, so kind of heartbreaking listening to, to the podcast you guys did together, Lost Kids, uh, is how Keith um, sort of strung the UNs along mm. um, and then continued to. Uh, the final episode in particular is so galling in kind of the um, the bullshitting that he does. But I, you know, I want to I want to sort of hone in on on some of the Keith stuff for for a second here. So he's he's hired by the UNs as a private investigator to search for Daniel after his disappearance. Um, and does he tur- does he turn up anything? Does he does he uh, like in the aftermath? Does he go tracking in the woods and find <laughs> footprints? I mean, what happens? <laughs> right, right, right. So what somebody claims is that he did hire you know he did an extensive search of the backside, hired a helicopter, did a helicopter search. They you know searched the surrounding areas, but pretty quickly he says he gets a sighting in San Diego, which is it's a couple hours away, um, and and very quickly. It's pretty- Pretty far. I mean, kind of shocking to hear when, you know, you look at, like, Google Maps, uh, you know, listeners, if you're doing this, especially if you're driving, pull out your Google Maps and search, uh, you know, in San Bernardino, Sea-Doo, I'm sure it still turns up, uh, and see how far it is from San Diego. It it seems patently absurd that it could walk. 3500 Seymour Road. I've done this. I've looked this up quite a bit, yeah. 
Yeah, it, I mean, it's just an absurd, absurd distance. But sorry, just want to add that. Yeah, out. well, I mean, for Blake Pursley, they they had similar things. San Bern, it was San Bernardino first. I think Daniel Ewens was also maybe San Bernardino, and then he went to San Diego. Blake Pursley, it was like Victor Valley or somewhere else, and then Denver because you know a kid who walks the limb can somehow get a thousand yeah. miles. Right. You know, so it's uh, yeah. I mean, the reality here is that the the deputy the, who who, who took the report uh, had a moment there to actually search. And there evidently wasn't any kind of search to, to the point where I'm trying to ask him directly, did you ever like look in the boys' dorms? Did you ever look in the lot? Like, where did you go? Um, and, he, and he won't respond at all. Um, but the, the truth is that he, there was, there was a golden moment there to really thoroughly search before, um, before the Ewans hired the Raymonds. Right, and which is, and in the absence of the police actually doing their job, is how someone like Keith Raymond can step in and say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take up the mantle here, I'll do the search, and, and he comes up with these sightings in San Diego. There was a few of them, and the Ewans really, you know, believed in their credibility, and they redirected their resources into San Diego. So the, the Ewans they still are do. from yeah. New Jersey. They would, like, fairly frequently start flying across the country and you know, they they were standing outside grocery stores with Daniel's sister handing out flyers, missing persons flyers, and also Daniel's friends, and, and Daniel's well. friends as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, who we interview in the podcast, Nick Galeda, you know, was. So, I mean, one of the things that the humans realized was like, okay, if he's alive and not contacting us, then we we are facing another problem, which is that he's not going to want to talk to us if we find him. Yeah. So they brought they brought Daniel's friend Nick in in the hopes that, you know, at least Nick could make that contact. And Nick thought it was bullshit. I mean, I, I interviewed him too for the, for the last piece. And, uh, and he was very, very suspicious of the Raymonds. Uh, and he was very, um, I think in, in, in a sense, he was, he was kind of hurt by what Keith was claiming too, which was, you know, Nick was pushing back on some of this dubious stuff that Keith was saying. Uh, and Keith would kind of double down and say, you know, Daniel just wants basically new friends or, you know, he's, he's outgrown right. ones. And that was very right. offensive to his best friend who, you know, in some ways I, I see Nick sort of as a, as a CDU resident who just never went to CDU because it was such a huge part of his life yeah. now, you know, and such a trauma to watch his best friend go away for unknown reasons. And then the next call is really, can, can you go out with his mom fly you know, across the country to start looking in San Diego. And his, his instinct was to like, uh, go to Sidhu and look at Sidhu and kind of get a, get a sense of where this place was that his best friend vanished from, which is a normal impulse. Right. But he was, you know, as he said, you know, he's with his, his best friend's mom, who was clearly just trying to process it all. And what is he going to do? He's 16 years old. I think what comes through in, uh, both of your reporting very much is that Keith's response after kind of what seems like, I mean, I'll say it if, you know, no one else wants to say it, but it's what seems like, you know, kind of a, a total just like, I don't know, what's the turn of phrase? Rabbit <laughs> chase? Like, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, he's just... It's like one just red like herring after another, these, really. Yeah, red yeah. herring. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, a total... Um, it just seems a bit of a like a farce of a kind of search in San Diego um, with these like poor leads and you know I quote unquote eyewitnesses that completely break down um, like on immediate inspection right. <laughs> by like anyone. But that then his response is well, you know, like you're saying, uh, David, like 
his response is like, well, actually, Daniel just wanted to run away. Actually, Daniel just wanted a new life. Actually, Daniel mm-hmm. just wanted new parents, which eerily mirrors the exact response of Sidhu, right? It right. is like almost exactly. like the literal exact same response and same attitude that Sidhu took to get everyone to stop paying attention to this missing kid. Yeah, and stop I mean, asking questions. It's it seems like it seems like what he's doing is is essentially like it's it's a cover up and it's a cover up to parents that are really receptive in some way to the cover up because the alternative means that their child is dead, right? Exactly. I mean, it's 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 either your kid is gone and and doesn't want to come back or your kid either died at Sidhu or died after running away from Sidhu somewhere in the San Bernardino Mountains. And those are, um, at, you know, as, as, as your interviews with them show, like pretty unacceptable. I mean, there, there seems to be especially more unacceptable to, to, to Daniel's father. Um, uh, and, and I Definitely. totally understand that. I would want to believe that my kid was alive and hold any shred of hope that he was out there but just, you know, resented me. God, that's kind of a nightmarish, uh, you know, set of possibilities. Um, right. And, and the, the thing is, it's just, it reminds me so much because when I, ra- I, ra- I did successfully run away uh, on a home visit and my, my parents hired a private investigator who did the same thing. They're like, oh, we, we've heard that yeah, afterwards. I, I never saw hide nor hair of the guy, but they said, uh, my parents told me afterwards, like, he's like, yeah, the, the private investigator said he had heard reports of you on Hate Street and like, and all these various places that like I never went to. Um, <laughs> he was just completely making all that shit up. Uh, and, um, I mean, I, it's so obvious, especially in that final episode. I mean, I, I think people should listen to it themselves that, like, Keith is, is such a fucking liar. But it does seem like he has this weird thing where he, he's, covering, he's covering it up. And he, he even gets in contact with the UNs, like, years and years and years later on his yep. fake deathbed. Uh, right. To right. that is such a bizarre twist, and this so sort bad. of contrite yeah. We, we'll method. get to that. That's I think yeah. That's we'll, we'll we'll get to that's a whole other part of this. Well, but, I mean, yeah. but it is interesting how like what you pointed out is that he's clearly not truthful. I mean, clearly like, covering up stuff, lying stuff. I, mean, I don't know what his motivations are. Was it just to make money? Is he covering up because he knows more information? But he's also clearly a terrible liar. I mean, some of the, yes. the corners he backed himself into are bananas, and one of them was was a claim. So what, he reappears in, in 2018. We don't know why, but suddenly saying, you know, this was the case that always haunted me. I, I couldn't find Daniel, and I just, like, uh, you know, I, I'm on my deathbed. It's my last dying wish to find Daniel, and, and kind of goes on to the news, um, claiming that he had restarted the investigation, and lo and behold... He had discovered that somebody at Hilltop Park in San Diego, the very same park, which is one of where one of the sightings happened, you know, 14 years earlier, mm-hmm. had seen Daniel again, um, and and you know, the, for the UNs, they were they obviously were really heartened to hear this and that he was going to take up the case and started looking into it. But the claims that he starts that he starts to make are are out of out of this world. I mean, one of them is that he, as he's searching, that he receives a voicemail message. And it's initially a voicemail message from someone saying, I know you're looking for Daniel. He doesn't want to be found. It was an anonymous, um, yeah, it was an, an anonymous, anonymous message. Right. Well, that's when, what he said. When you interviewed him, it was Daniel himself, right? Well, exactly. So when I interviewed him, he said, it was Daniel himself, and I knew it was Daniel because he had a, a Chinese accent. 
Oh, um, no. Daniel Yuen's parents are from China. Yeah. Daniel, I mean, we told this to his best friend, Nick Galeda, and Nick lost his yeah. mind because he's yeah. like, I, you know, it is born he in New Jersey. New Jersey. <laughs> right. But in the, oh, but, but this, there's a supplemental police report that was added on, obviously, in 2018, 2019, and they interviewed Keith Raymond, too, law enforcement, and he changed it a third time. It's now a psychic. That sent. So we went from anonymous. I, you, you, we didn't have that document for the podcast. Right. I got it later on, and I was like, very. So I was trying to press him when I was interviewing La- or whatever it was. I was trying. We were trying to do uh, for the last piece, and we're saying, okay, was it an anonymous person? Was it a psychic? Was it Daniel? Who? Who? At, can you please just like stick to one story? Wait. Um, so he changed and- his story from he got this mysterious voicemail from Daniel Ewan himself. And then from an anonymous caller being like, give up your inquiries, they're they're useless. And then he told the police that a psychic, as in somebody who possesses psychic abilities such as reading the future and possibly telepathy, was the person that called him and told him that Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I found. think I sent you guys the police report. I mean, it's in the it's yeah. in supplemental. I think it's like page four of it, and it's very very strange. And we published that, you know, for LA Mag because it's just like this is this is to- he's all over. Keith Raymond is all over the original runaway report because uh, the you know the 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 deputy he's now a captain, but at the time Robert Work basically what he's saying is you know the the parents hired a private investigator, meaning we don't have to do much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 2018 2019 supplemental police report all over Keith Raymond because he's being interviewed. He, there's there's follow-ups now. You know the the you know the law enforcement in San Diego, law enforcement in, in San Bernardino are actually trying to determine what are these credible at all, and none of them are. So again, like there is Daniel Ewan's story has been transformed by the Raymonds, uh, and I did try to. I don't. Did you, Josh? Did you did you try to interview Cindy too? Right at the salon. We did, yeah, she, yeah, yeah. And she she just shut the door, right? Right. Yeah, same with me too. The one thing that she did state was, you know, that she's divorced from Keith, and then also she she claimed she didn't know, she couldn't remember anything about this case, but she knew exactly how long it's been since it's you know it occurred roughly. Right. So she she's part of this too. Well, I think it's one thing for San Bernardino police. They're looking into, you know, what Keith Raymond claims, and he changes his story to say it's a psychic. But that's not the story that the media and the family got, right? Because, like, from all of Keith Raymond's, either his sightings or whatever, it kind of kept this story alive as Daniel is still out there his face on People Magazine, like leaflets right. and on true crime kind of missing persons, docu-day drama, soap, like I don't even, you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's kind of yeah, genre, yeah. television stuff. genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah core tabloid. TV, right. Yeah. yeah, core TV, absolutely. Um, and they never got that side of the story. They never heard that it was, you know, oh, actually maybe it was a psychic that called me. Um, and so you but have they to cer- sort of they like- certainly got the bullshit though. They just chose not to, and that's that's the other part of this is that you know this this tabloid media that's obsessed with missing persons. Um, they've and especially even like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They've they've really reinforced this narrative of, of the sightings of being alive. They've completely ignored investigations. They've ignored the podcast. Uh, they've done so deliberately. You know, I've, I've, I've spoken with Nick Nick. I've spoken with the senior producer just as, you know, three weeks ago saying, look, this anniversary is coming up. 
please don't just exclusively interview the Ewins. Please, I'll give you any sort of information. What we're doing right now here, I wanted to do with, with Nick Mick and with Angeline Hartman, who's the director of communications, because um, she's she was interviewed on Court TV in 2021. This is a year after the podcast came out. And she's leaning into Keith Raymond's claims. Um, she's saying, you know, may, maybe Daniel has a family now and he's in San Diego and whatever. And it's been such a an insult to to those of us who who care about this story and really want justice for Daniel because it's just not based on anything that we've seen. There's no evidence of this and there's no other side to it. So three weeks ago, I'm on the call with the senior producer and I'm saying, let's just please do this. Let's Or, or if you do want to interview the Ewans, just let me send you some, some other relevant information. And the response back was, we're declining cooperation. And I just assume they're not going to do anything. And then I get a message from, from Wayne Ewan saying, you know, by the way, I just was interviewed by Nick Mick. Uh, and, and the questions were, you know, what, you know, if Daniel's listening, what would you like to say to him? And there's nothing about the fact that there's a homicide number attached to his son's case. Now there's nothing about the police. There's nothing about what's really happened post lost kids uh, or, or detective Rosa losing her cases or anything that I've done in LA mag. There's just none of it. So at, at a certain point, you know, are, are we now just fighting? Uh, what's the point of this really? You know, if it's just, if there's two different multiple narratives and they're all sort of competing for attention. So I think that's something I want to really drill down onto is the, is the, the homicide angle of it. Um, because, you know, as, as I think we talked about last year, but, but I really want to bring up here is that, uh, these cases, which were missing persons cases, had uh, the, the letter H attached to them in 2023 and then backdated to 2022, meaning that they're now in homicide, uh, which is very, very different. That's an, a, a yet another narrative, um, actually. I mean, because you have the Daniel is missing and doesn't want to be found. You have that, uh, you know, uh, that, that Daniel is, is possibly, you know, dead somewhere out in the uh, San Bernardino Mountains. And then you have homicide. Uh and they are given and they're, they're, they're looked into by this detective that you have um, some uh, contact with. And then they're essentially like shunted into like cold care. The, the cases are shut down. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the, the sort of the new new aspects of that, uh, of, of your dealings with the San Bernardino Sheriff Department are? Yeah, I mean, I think we should um, just go back a little bit here. So late, late November of 2021, or, let me go back even further. So for decades, all three CD missing kids, these cases were open, but inactive. They were, and they were all in the Twin Peaks station, which is the patrol station in the San Bernardino mountains. That's part of the sheriff's department. Right. And these were just cases you just didn't want to touch. So they, they were never investigated properly. No one was looking into them. And then in November 2021, a newly promoted detective to that station, her name's Alicia Rosa, she, she comes on the scene, she's looking at missing persons uh, cases in the region, and she stumbles on the fact that three kids vanished from the same location, which is rare. So she looks into CDU, she sees my stuff as Medium Anonymous, you know, she saw the lost kids too, she reaches out to me, she wants help 
navigating this world. Uh, so I come on to, to essentially I'm, I'm assisting her, her case and what she's doing. She's looking at all three of them simultaneously. And she's mainly focusing on John Inman and Blake personally, just because they're older, but, um, but also looking at Daniel Ewan too. And it's a very intense few months. And she realizes, wow, this, you know, her, her instinct here is that there's maybe foul play involved. She wants to get cadaver dogs on the campus. She's, you know, there's probable cause. She wants to go, uh, you know, get a, get a search warrant, go to a judge, all these things. But she also wants to get even more professional help uh, than whatever is available to her within the Twin Peaks station. So she reaches out to Team Adam, which is a service that's part of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's just for law enforcement. And they they have like investigative advice and search analysis and technical support and equipment and all the all the stuff you really want. So it's a it's a two-step uh, process for uh, for the, for approval. So the the approval did come first from Team Adam. They had an investigator uh, Detective Rosa was was clearing a workstation for them, in, in you know, in the office, we were we were both trying to find places where you know they could they could you know lodge. Uh, w- the, the idea I had was they could go rent out Cedar's property because it's a retreat center, mm-hmm. and they thought it was a great idea. Um, so in, you know you're going to search, you're going to sleep where you search, you know. Um, so that was late. That was late January 2022 when the approval for Team Adam arrived. In order, the, the next step was clearance from within the sheriff's department themselves. So, uh, in February of 2022, Detective Rosa presented these cases to uh, detectives that are within the. I mean, I guess they were homicide cold case detectives. They're part of the specialized investigation div- division. So, detectives drove up the mountain. She presented these cases. Uh, Rosa's captain at the time, uh, Don Lapier, was there, I believe, and the assumption was. After she presents these cases, they give their clearance, and then Team Adam could fly out and do their thing, and that would that would have been incredible. Uh, but what ended up happening was, Homicide Cold Case said, "We want all three cases. We're going to take these cases." And and essentially, Rosa was fired from her own cases. That was basically how she put it. Uh, and then the new lead. So so all of all these cases were then taken off the mountain into San Bernardino city and then nothing happened. So the new lead detective, he was a homicide cold case guy, his name was Eric Ogaz. And he, he was the lead investigator now. Uh, and in April of 2022, it still seemed like things were, weren't being worked. They weren't being prioritized at all. So I, I don't know why they were commandeered if they weren't doing anything, but they weren't. Uh, so Rosa tried to get her cases back and Ogaz seemed to be receptive to that. He supported the idea of, of Rosa getting these cases back. Uh, and he also supported Rosa going on record and, and being interviewed about CDU. Um, he thought that might actually produce leads. That was denied. She could she was gagged, put under a sweeping overbroad gag order. Uh, it was denied getting these cases back. Nothing could happen. So then that was in April of 2022. In October 2022, I kind of blew the whistle a bit with the first LA Magazine piece um, about this. And then the following month, November 2022, Homicide Cold Case still wasn't working. So even though there was some public outrage, even though people were starting to catch on that maybe these investigations should be ongoing, maybe Rosa should have, have them back, they still were just kind of ignoring ignoring this and, and refusing to work it. Uh, 
And then things really changed starting like, uh, uh, yeah, I guess around November 2022 or around then another detective, Edward Hernandez, uh, took over from Eric Ogaz. And he's a different type of detective. He doesn't really respond to anything. He doesn't respond when people try to send him information about these cases. Um, and then this is where things really get kind of messy. So in March of 2023, three things happened. The first is that I think Rosa was trying to get them back a second time. And it was, uh, there was, there was some rumors that maybe her captain was going to be, um, retiring. So that might be an opportunity to get her original cases back, uh, implying that maybe he had a hand in making sure that they weren't being worked, um, the same month, another article was published in LA Mag that you know I, that I wrote about Daniel Ewan, and later in the month, Rose informed me that all of these cases now had a homicide number, the same number for all three cases, and what that did was completely prevent her from ever requesting them back because what a homicide number does is it's it it effectively acts as a barrier that prevents mm-hmm. outside law enforcement divisions from assisting on cases, so it is now property. Of 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 homicide cold case mm. in San Bernardino, and that's you know the fact that it, it coincided with us spotlighting you know the the mishandled investigations just seems really concerning because it was tacked on for 2022, it, but it was done in 2023, um, and that's a real that's a problem for us. And then uh, in April, my uh, I, I I co-wrote a, an open letter to Sheriff Dykus about this. My my editor. Uh, have, you know, help, helped with this too, hoping that at least if we kind of went big and went public, uh, there would be some response to it, but Dykus ignored it. Uh, and then in May of 2023, I received an email, my editor did too, from Public Affairs, uh, but on behalf of like the entire department, stating that all communication was over about, about this. Uh, and then the, the following month, the legal director for the First Amendment Coalition uh, sent uh, sent another letter to, I mean, I wrote a letter, but he sent his own letter, the, the legal director of the First Amendment Coalition, to Sheriff Dykus as well, just to talk about these sweeping, overbroad gag orders that aren't justified by any legitimate law enforcement concerns, mm-hmm. like none whatsoever. So we thought maybe if we had like this organization helping, that would that would do something, but it didn't. He ignored, you know, the, the whole department ignored it too. And then as of December, 2023, County Council uh, confirmed again that, you know, all department members will not speak about CDU at all. So there is, you know, this massively influential institution, 50 year reign or whatever of this institution. And it's completely off limits for any outside scrutiny, which is very, very, very disturbing. Yeah, I just want to hammer that home for anyone, you know, we have some members of the media listening, and so I just want to hammer this home, that since, you know, you put out the the podcast, since you published two pieces, that the San Bernardino Police Department has completely stonewalled any sort of, you know, uh, any questions, any 
uh, insight into their relationship with Sidhu, into their relationship with, you know, what was, you know, what was handled in terms of these invest in terms of these missing kids. Um, it wasn't so much that they shut down when Keith Raymond was running about, you know, saying that, oh, maybe he's in San Diego. Oh, maybe he's still alive. Oh, maybe, you know, he just wants to be left alone. That's not when he was, they shut down like any kind of, you know, uh, openness about these cases. It was when, you know, people started asking questions and pointing to connections that the San Bernardino Police Department and the local government in San Bernardino had with this institution, CDU. So I just kind of want to like bring it back around yeah. before yeah, we have exactly. to wrap up because yeah. like I think it's really important to highlight that. Like, what do we know about the kind of uh, lattice work between this? you know, the local government, the police department, and CDU, more so than, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the show. I mean, one, one thing I can add is that, you know, CDU was a really important um, part of the local economy in yeah. Running Springs, and it employed, a, you know, beyond just the staff that worked there, you know, there were people that were catering and the medical staff and all kinds of stuff. It's not, Running Springs is not a big town, so there was an incentive to keep the place operational and, and you know, the, the town happy that way. Um, and, and I should say that, like, also CDU is not around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it shut down. There was court mm-hmm. cases that, that happened. The UNs were part of several court cases that CDU faced. Um, but those staff, I mean, in terms of accountability, those, many of those staff went off to work at other places. And this is the the long history of the yeah. so-called troubled teen industry is that there's a pattern of a place getting shut down and literally in its ashes, something else will come up or multiple places will come up. So a lot of the staff that worked at CDU went on to now hold very high positions um, mm-hmm. in, in inside the industry and like zero accountability there. But to your point, I mean, o- often it is the case that, you know, you are... Um, you are working within a community and the community um, is happy to have you there because for a number of these programs, especially when they're purposely set in fairly isolated and small places so that it's difficult for the, the residents to, to make it out of there, it becomes part of the, the economy. And, and it's a great, you know, um, Mel Wasserman, did, the, the founder of CDU, did a great job of like being a part of the community and, and, yeah. and making it known that he was like a great citizen. And look at me, I'm helping out these, these troubled kids. Um, and, and, and so the political connections... Um, are there and and sort of and then just to lift it up, you know, even on a grander scale, these money making endeavors are supported at the highest levels of both the Democratic and Republican parties. I mean, Mike Pence, Mitt Romney, these guys um, are are invested in these programs. So, like in terms of the bigger political support for these kind of programs to operate, it is there, and it's very hard to um, dislodge them from their existence. I mean, there just is not good regulation um, that exists to make these programs both beneficial and safe. Yeah. I mean, going back just to Daniel's case, though, or all these cases that, you know, this this was an opportunity, you know, Keith, Keith Raymond, you know, Rosa was able to track him down. He was, he was in Wyoming um, and she considered him to be someone that really needed to be uh, interviewed, you know, maybe mm-hmm. under polygraph. You know, this is someone who knew a great deal more than what he was saying. Um, and he, here's this person who, you know, this you, you finally get to a point 
where there is a law enforcement officer who does take this seriously and wants to solve this case and thinks that there are individuals that can provide information if pressed. Um, and then she can't even do this because she doesn't have the cases anymore. So if they're just rotting away in San Bernardino City, you know, I, this has been now for two years, right? Uh, this has been ongoing. And if Rosa had had these cases for two years, I firmly believe that she would have solved one of them by now. And I mean, honestly, I, I've spent the last couple of years living Lost Kids season two to the point where I feel like Josh's voice is narrated. <laughs> you know, I, can, I, can, I can hear it because it's just, you know, this this really happened as a, in some ways as a result of the podcast. And they obviously these, you know, these homicide cops are listening to true crime podcast too and they kind of want to be on it some of them um and, and yet there's just no dialogue and we're still left in some ways 20 years of the same narrative really um and at, at a certain point something's going to have to change or it's just going to be us doing our little podcasts and then you know nick mick and and the tabloid media saying he's alive in san diego and the parents have the biggest voice of all at this point, and they're just going to go wherever gives them hope. So uh, it's really, do you want hope or do you want the truth? And that's the question. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that there's also, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to obviously I have no idea, but like, I think that there's also the possibility that like in at least one of these kids cases, like it could have been a case of restraint gone wrong. I mean, that happens at these yeah. programs often. And so like, it could really be a literal homicide and not just, you know, shunted off to that as a sort of bureaucratic runaround to, to not look into it. We don't know because nobody, nobody's looking into it now that, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth uh, pinpointing that like, yeah, when these cases started getting attention, like when when you, when you guys did Lost Kids, when when you wrote those articles, that is when this sort of like other kind of cover up happened. You know, this brief, mm -hmm. you know, this one detective looking into it, and then that there's completely just being like shunted away and and essentially locked in a in a drawer. And not only that, but you know, you you said you had the county council emailing you, being like, "There's no, yeah. this stuff is not coming up anymore." I mean, that's 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 pretty astounding for. You know, uh, cold cases that are 20, 30 years old at this point. Um, yeah, and Keith, you know, when, when I, it's very hard to make sense of Keith's, you know, word salads. You know, he always throws a little bit of meat in them, but it's other than that, it's just incomprehensible. But he did, when I was trying to get him to divulge things, he did at one point say, like, he did what he, he did what he did to, like, reopen these cases. Um, and, you know, he, in his mind, he's a do-gooder. Um, and I think, there was, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit before. There was like a 14-year period or whatever. I think it was 2007 to, to 20, late 2018 where there was nothing happening. The Ewans uh, were not in communication with Keith Raymond. They weren't in communication. They, were, uh, they were dissatisfied with missing persons uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. They were dissatisfied with everything. That's why they ended up go going to me. You know, the, it was like a last-ditch thing was to talk to a survivor that maybe could do something. And then immediately immediately Keith Raymond reappears. Um, I think it was the same month even with this desire to, to find the kid. And then magically there are sightings. And then after that, it's magically there's this voicemail. So the UN's lost interest in me until, you know, a couple years later until we were doing lost kids. So, I mean, there's, I think Josh could talk about this more, but, but Keith has his own beliefs about the, 
the you know law, local law enforcement and their their role in all of this too. And some of his things he's saying are correct. Totally. I mean, I, you're right. I, I don't think he has a lot of. Um, I mean, he's very aware of the the local law enforcement's failure to step in. I mean, it helps his case. It helps his brand to be like, I'm going to be the mm-hmm. the savior here and and do what the police should be doing. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, he, even his his view, he he seems to have hung out at CDU a fair bunch and even attended some of the the therapy so called therapeutic sessions, the profits, and we talked for a while about them. Like on that side, he actually seemed quite sane and, and seemed to like echo the things that we were discovering about yeah. the weird CIA CIA like torture tactics that they were using yeah. in the program. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was very sympathetic to to why kids would be fleeing from the place. Um so he he clearly has uh an an awareness of what the program was about and and of the failures of of the police it's just when he gets to his own work that things become pretty shady well he also he also sort of faked his own death uh while, <laughs> while you were trying well, to well this is this is his go to move when things so like i mean he so he good. when we talked he said you know i promise you i'm going to send you this voicemail message just email me uh and you know next day i email him and i said great like i'd love to hear that audio and after pressing up a, co- a couple times, I get a message from his email account that said, "Hey, uh, I see that that you've been emailing with my brother. This is Steve, and, and my brother is about to die. Um, sorry, he can't." Answer. <laughs> Just like you really—I mean, you guys are not kidding. He really does seem like the, one of the worst liars. This happened to me with Nicholas Rossi's wife. Uh, message me and be like, you're killing my husband by asking him if he's... <laughs> wife in quotation marks. Wife. Well, no, she was really right. his wife, but I don't know if she... I don't know if that was her emailing. Either. I don't know if that That's was... That's what I her. mean. I, there was definitely him behind it. Yeah. But yes, right. very similar kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to... I mean, the, the question that I had had for, for, for years was why San Diego? And I, I finally got the answer from the Ewins. Uh, it, it was almost... An, it was a very casual way... I, did you did the Ewans ever tell you, Josh, that that the Raymonds had relatives in San Diego? No. So they did. They told me because I never understood why San Diego. And then I think it was Wayne or Lisa point, pointed out that they had family in San Diego, and it was like, mm. well, don't you find that kind of strange that this area that Daniel didn't didn't know whatsoever, and now he's like reportedly there, and the source for that information is a person that can control a narrative about a certain region. And they didn't think there was anything weird at all. Well, it's also, it gives, uh, it gives him a place to free place to stay when he's in town to, to save right. the cost. Right. Right. Um, yeah. well, well guys, we, we got to wrap up, um, just a couple things. One is, uh, is there, is there anybody that are like, cause you know, I, we've, we've talked about basically this, decades long cover up of of even trying to find out what actually happened not even necessarily covering up the truth but covering up any ability to find out the truth in the first place um is there anybody like our our listeners can email or call or annoy in some way uh that that is related to this case i say annoy the san bernardino sheriff's department do what i've been doing you know call up the uh specialized investigations division contact the san bernardino sheriff's department and ask why, you know, what are these cops doing and why were these cases taken from, from Twin Peaks and uh, just annoy them. My public outrage is going to, to help. And at the same time, it's just, you know, 
as many eyes on this topic as you can get and as people care about this and realize just how much bullshit there is, um, that, you know, that can help, you know, just, just kind of being investigative and also pushing, pushing Nick Mick and, and other tabloidy places, um, and pushing back against this narrative that doesn't make a lot of sense or asking to see evidence, um, that can help, but really it's just, it's just going to take us really. I think I said that a year ago, it's going to take people like us. It's going to take more podcasts, docuseries, you're going to have to fight institutions with institutions. Um, and the more, the more you can get, perhaps, perhaps something remains solvable. Yeah. I'd say too, you know, if you're a big time publication out there looking for a you know, blockbuster story, this has it all. It's got missing kids. It's got, you know, a cold case. It's got weirdo Keith trying to, you know, fake his own death. It's got a literal sheriff's department called Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Well, that's already, yeah. yeah. Right there (laughs) in the name. A little on the nose there. A little on the nose. And it's got a multi, you know, quite frankly, a multi-billion dollar industry that makes a lot of fucking money, uh, you know, on the abuse uh, and possible killing of kids. Well, Perfect. on that note, you did it well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I also I just wanted to say thank you to both of you. I mean, we I I I you know I went to one of these places when I was a kid, and I tried my best not to ever think about it until about six or seven years ago. Uh, actually, really, until I went to rehab as an adult, which I did need to go to at that point. Um, and and a counselor there uh, and I were talking, and I was just telling about my child. And it, this was like a regular kind of like program and uh i you know i mentioned that like yeah i went to this this thing that was like you know i knew that it was from cdu i didn't know about synanon i was like it was from this thing called cdu and then we sort of uh got talking about synanon he had gotten basically abducted by them when he was young uh and uh yeah like they'd given a bunch of potassium it was weird but uh since then i you know i started looking into it and then like really kind of going back and and i guess in the parlance of today like unlocking some of the trauma that I experienced there. But, you know, listening to the, to Lost Kids was the, um, the first time I'd ever like really heard in, in media, like, oh my God, like this is like a description of what I, I went through. Uh, and then, then reading, um, you know, Running My Anger, uh, David, your piece on, on c was just like very revelatory to me. Uh, Cause it is, it, it, it's, I mean, a major, major, major part of my life. Um, and yeah, I mean, I gotta tell you, just, this is, I'm, I'm, this is, it's just such an infuriating case. Uh, you know, a kid died at one of my programs, uh, and at Sagewalk, which was, as you, you know, Josh, you mentioned Romney, Sagewalk owned by uh, a subsidiary of Bain Capital. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a homicide that, that was investigated as a homicide. Uh, and I think probably could have been charged as a homicide. Uh, but one another one of those things, it's like, this is a, a boon for the local economy. It employs all these people. Uh, you know, there's a lot of money behind it. And then, uh, it just got nothing, no follow up. And then the cop died, uh, as I found out when I tried right. to call him. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah. And so it's just, you know, this stuff is really, I mean, these are, these are three missing, almost certainly, uh, deceased, uh, children and, uh, you know, dozens of adults that were supposed to be uh, the people keeping them safe from the people that, that had uh, had charged them at CDU 
to the sheriffs, uh, to these you know, private investigators. You know, these are all people who are tasked with uh, one of the, your number one goals as any of those people is making sure a child doesn't die. Uh, and they not only failed at that, uh, they, they have spent decades uh, in various ways making sure that um, they mislead the family and uh, that they uh, can cover up their own guilt. So there's a lot of guilt here. And there's, there's ironically, for CDU, nobody taking any accountability. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Totally. Um, so thank you guys for coming on. We will link to basically everything we mentioned on this in the show description. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you again. Crazy? Do they call it San Berdu sometimes? Never heard that in my life. San Berdu. Am I San Berdu? Making that up? New to me. I feel like that was a '60s thing to call it San Berdu. It could be, but never, never really, heard that. Never really been there. Yeah, me neither. I've been to. Have you been to Idlewild? No. It's not San Bernardino, but it's all. I wait. Idlewild is up. That's. Is that towards? It's like, uh, it's like, I feel like it's a like Joshua Tree style place. But it's for mountain I mean. people. But it's for mountain people. Yeah. Mountain slash lake people. For is la- that kind of like Lake Arrowhead, or is that uh, is it on the way? Stretching my uh, topographical and geographical no. knowledge, um, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember got, there was a store in Echo Park called Idlewild, <laughs> and it sold T-shirts that said like, "Yeah, feminism exactly. is cool." Feminism <laughs> is. You know what? Check this out. Feminism's based. <laughs> That'll be the new one. Are people still saying based? Uh, are people, people like Elon Musk. I feel like Elon Musk says based a lot. Ba- like I, I, I imagine it, him yeah. like fucking high as a kite running around like these poor developers' desks being like, oh, based. I thought of a new based <laughs> Oh my God, that new, oh, the, the new update, based. You should be able to make calls on Twitter that's fuck or X, it's based. Yeah. Oh, you should be able to trade crypto on X, based. God. I wish the internet was illegal so bad. <laughs> there was a there was like some fake news bullshit that like the Houthis were gonna cut the this like fiber optic cable under the Red Sea that would destroy the internet. Mm-hmm. And like I mean, obviously it's not gonna happen, but like you know, you could just isn't there just like a bunch of fiber optic yeah. cables you could Oh yeah, people have talked about that. You know, I will say people used to talk about that a lot more in the Ed Snowden days. Because also Kind of right after the Ed Snowden stuff, mm-hmm. um, because part of the the dossiers that got like you know they had these maps of where all those yeah, cables yeah, and shit yeah, are, yeah. but also the big NSA black, they're not black sites, but they're sort of they're computer black sites, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the big NSA hubs for servers and shit that are, you know I know where one is in LA and there's you know there's a bunch all over the world. It's People talk like about you know physical pipeline infrastructure action. The internet. Yeah, I, I would say make more pipelines. School to prison, oil, mm. uh, maybe fuck it, coke. You know that would cut down a lot of the border stuff. Um, but you were saying, no, I was just. I think for fake news, like I think it's okay to have a little fake news. I think everyone should be able to have a little fake news. Yeah, like just a little like. Okay, that was my little fake news for the week. The Houthis are going to cut the, under, the fiber optic cable. This is in the what Red they don't sea. tell you about fake news. It's fun as hell. It's really the only kind of news you want to tell anyone about. It's the only kind of news that you want to read. Yeah, the fake news. <laughs> yeah, true. Here's what sucks: reading the real news. You know why? Horrible. Not great. Not but the great. fake news. 
Kind of interesting. Fake news is <laughs> makes you think. I view fake news as this as it's sort of the icing on the real news cake. Mm, you know that's what right. I mean? You, and you don't want to have too much because then when you get too fat, you get sick, you get diabetes. Mm-hmm. So you just have a little fake news as a treat. Yeah, true. So if you're listening to this, ladies and gentlemen, keep that Daily Mail subscription. Yeah. Keep that New York Post subscription and keep reading that fake news. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. The podcast is called True Anon. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.